I'm Terry Maynus, Dean of the Hand Camera School of Business, and we just uh, very much appreciate you being here. Uh, this, uh, this is really the first event of our Business Ethics Forum, the Dell P. Jones Business Ethics Forum, that will take place uh, not only just this week, but next week and the week after. So there's about, uh, there will be events over the next three weeks. And I hope that if you don't see, haven't seen a calendar, there are calendars on the table. And as you're leaving, pick up one because the topics are, are varied over the three weeks and there'll be different opportunities uh, for you to uh, hear different aspects of ethics. And uh, there's case studies, there's uh, competitions, there's speakers. Uh, some of you uh, many of you will have uh, ethics officers from, from uh, a variety of businesses that will come in and, and kind of give you a perspective of, of the importance of ethics from their standpoint. So a variety of things will be available to you, and I really encourage you to, uh, to take advantage of that. Uh, we started at, at the business school, we started something called uh, uh, Business Ethics Focus Week uh, back in 1978. And, um, it, it, and we've been trying to uh, really emphasize ethics uh, to, uh, to our students and, and to the campus for, for a number of years. And yet uh, it's really only grown in the, it really with the help of Dr. Mitch Newbert, who's our, our uh, Siobhan professor of Christian business ethics. He has really taken this and expanded it to its now three-week format. So it uh, really has grown, in, uh, and I think you'd have to say not only grown in, uh, in, in simply length of time, but grown in importance because of the kind of events that uh, many of you have witnessed the last couple of years. But uh, perhaps uh, uh, you can go back uh, five years ago, six years ago, seven years ago with, uh, with Enron and WorldCom, several other events that happened a few years back and then even back before then. So there seems to be a recurring cycle of, of uh, significant lapse in, in ethics as people have practiced it. And so we, we've intensified our efforts to try and make a point to you the importance of integrity in everything that you do, whether it's in business, your professional life, your, your personal personal life. Uh, uh, integrity is something that, uh, that really uh, is absolutely critical to, uh, to you being a success and, and for our society. So uh, pay attention to, uh, to, the, uh, to the talk tonight. Uh, you're going to hear sort of firsthand events from our speaker. Uh, but what I'd like to do right now is uh, bring up uh, Mr. Maxie Parrish. Uh, Maxie's going to introduce our speaker to you, uh, and I think we really are fortunate to have, uh, have him with us. So Maxie will introduce him. Uh, Maxie is a senior lecturer in the journalism department and is also a KWBU board member. And uh, from what I understand, uh, NPR is your favorite radio station. So Maxie. Good evening. It's really exciting for me to be here because I am a teacher in the journalism department and NPR is something that I'm very passionate about. So this is just a, a wonderful evening. One of the things that I ask my classes to do every semester is to look at various forms of media, most of which they've never seen, heard, or read before. And every time that I ask them to listen to NPR, I get some very interesting responses, things like, I never realized the media could go into so much depth. Interesting. Another, the reporters there seem to lack the bias that you normally see in other forms of media. And then finally, it's nice to know that you don't have to have two people screaming at one another to get the news. And I think that uh, these characteristics are the hallmarks of NPR. And of course, the person that our, we have tonight as our guest, Mr. Jim Zeroli from NPR and is with an organization that is steered clear of the polarizing, market-driven, entertainment-based news that we see in so many outlets today. Jim Zeroli has covered business and the economy for NPR's New York Bureau since 1996. In that position, he regularly covers a wide variety of economic topics, including employment, the stock market, the Federal Reserve System, deregulation, trade, and of course, something near and dear to my heart, the media. He's heard regularly on Morning Edition, All Things Considered, and he's also a contributor to the program on the media. And I might add that he's also a panelist on a number of other programs that need experts to come and discuss issues. 
Among the stories he's worked on are the various accounting scandals, Enron, WorldCom, and other companies, the Martha Stewart trials, the Ebers trial, uh, and he's also worked on tax shelters, insurance industry, oil prices, and corporate mergers, among many, many other things. Jim's reporting truly is first rate, and I'm especially appreciative of the fact that he goes beyond the towers of Manhattan and interviews people on the street, people who are affected by the crises that we talk about, people who lose their heat in a New York apartment because of the mortgage, mortgage crisis, senior citizens who lose their life savings as a result of some other scandal. He uses a very special human touch to his reporting, and perhaps no more so during the 9-11 attacks when he helped NPR cover the bombing at the World Trade Center, or the uh, attack at the World Trade Center. Jim is a guy that knows more than business. Once, in the program On the Media, he did a remarkable story, complete with sound effects, on the Godzilla movies from Japan. Very interesting. But before covering business, he was a general reporter for NPR. He's covered a number of topics, the United Nations, the first Gulf War, the Bosnia crisis. He's worked for WBUR in Boston. He's been a reporter for the Pittsburgh Press, the Associated Press. He's written for the Christian Science Monitor, the Los Angeles Times, and the Boston Globe. Perhaps one of the greatest things about Jim is that he has a journalism degree, a 1979 graduate of Penn State University and their wonderful school of communications there. His hobbies are reading, gardening, he loves to travel. And I love this quote, it says that he likes most people except those who mistreat animals. Anybody like that can't be all bad. Please help me in welcoming Jim Zeroli. Thank you. Thank you, that was, that was very kind, thank you. Um, I um, am. I, I really is a treat for me to be here. I actually uh, I love to travel and I I love to talk about myself. That that's that's something that that comes with middle age. It's kind of like back pain. Um, I uh, and and uh, I so I was glad. I was you know very very happy to have the opportunity to to come here. I um. I'm glad for another reason, too. I am right now, I, I normally work in New York City, but NPR has kind of I've, I've pulled me off the air for a while so I can attend a training program in, in Washington. Um, like a lot of news organizations, NPR is trying very hard now to, to respond to the changes that the Internet is bringing to, to the news business, and they want us to do things for the web. And so this week I've been brought there with about 14 other people and we're trying to learn to do photographs which is totally new to me I'm not very technically savvy um, I went to the Hilton today and I had to ask you know, how to turn the TV on how to open the door in the business center and how to print a document uh, and they, they kept sending the same guy back to tell me how to do it, it was really embarrassing <laughs> um, but anyway, I, uh, they, they, they're trying to train us how to do this. They brought this guy, this professional photographer, in to critique what we do, and it's painful. <laughs> and let me tell you, the, the middle-aged ego is a fragile thing. Um, I find cameras very complicated. The whole process of setting up the, the shutter speed, the f-stop, and transferring the photos to computers so they can be cropped and edited and color balanced is, is vastly more complicated than you can imagine, at least for me. Um, you know, the, the Iranians think they're pretty smart because they've learned how to enrich uranium, but let's see how they do with a Canon G10. It's, so I, I, I've been there all week. It's sort of a different thing for me, and I've, um, I'm glad to be able to come back and talk about things I know a little bit better. I, 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 I'm really actually having a lot of fun doing it because I'm learning something new. I, I find I go to bed exhausted at night um, because I'm learning something new. I'm concentrating in a completely different way. Uh, I really think that that is the secret to keeping a, a supple mind, is trying to learn something new. And you don't get all that many opportunities for it. So I, I was asked to speak about corporate governance today, and I, and I want to do that. I want to talk about some personal experiences I've, I've had this summer back home in New York. 
um, and what I think it says about some of the problems facing corporate boards. But I'm, I first will tell you a little bit about my work. Um, I was born in Wilmington, Delaware. I, I come from a very large family and a very, for the most part, a very conservative family. Um, my father is an executive at a textile company, or he was, he's retired now. Um, here's a word of warning if you ever meet him. Uh, try not to say the words environmental protection agency. He, um, he's not a big fan of the government. But I also have a, a, a brother who's starting a business, and I know how tough he works and how much of a toll that starting the business has taken on his personal life. And I also know something else that I think economists miss, which is, you know, I know he wants to make a lot of money. I know he does. But I also know he, that he wants to make a product that he very much believes will make life better for other people. And I think that is probably the main thing that animates him. Um, and I, I think about both of them a lot when I deal with people in the business world. Um, and I think that knowing them has given me a more nuanced picture of, of, of how the business world works than I otherwise would have had. Um, I'm a, a general assignment business and economics reporter, which, um, you know, as you heard, means I cover a lot of different things. I'm, I'm now into my second recession. Uh, I just did my second story recently on the Dow hitting 10,000. Um, I covered a lot of the corporate scandals. I was at the Martha Stewart trial every day, Bernie Ebers. Uh, I did a lot, a lot of Bernie Madoff stories this year. Um, and I cover the stock market, which is a a kind of a surreal experience uh, in, in a lot of ways these days. Um, N NPR uh, doesn't like you to do stories that are all phone tape. Um, they really try to discourage that. They want you to actually go out somewhere so you get a sense of place and activity. They want noise. They, they, and like a lot of news organizations, they think first of sending their reporters to the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. You know, they want that that screaming, that shouting in the pits and all that stuff. But I I don't know if you've seen the New York Stock Exchange on TV lately. It's it's a lot quieter than it used to be. Um, it, it's almost kind of civilized. And I think, and that's because most of the stock trading now is carried out in other venues, on alternative exchanges, for instance. The New York Stock Exchange is just not as important as it was in that sense. Um, places like Direct Edge, which is an alternative uh, exchange, I actually went out there to their offices a few months ago in New Jersey, and they're really quiet out there, which is a problem for radio reporters. So you, you stand there with your microphone, and you're trying to record people saying stuff, and the and the the levels are way over on the left, which means nothing's registering, and uh, and and it always happens. Somebody comes over to you and says, "Do you want me to pretend to shout for you?" <laughs> so I, I um, it's it's a difficult it's a difficult beat to cover. It it's um, always kept me pretty busy, but in the past couple of years, of course, it has really exploded. I'm very busy. I do stories all the time. People have an interest in business now in a way that they, I've never seen before. Um, they, they actually ask me questions. I go to parties. People ask me questions like, you know, what's going to happen to the banks? Um, you know, how can they, those Wall Street firms get away with paying those big bonuses when they just took government handouts? Um, they ask me these things, and they, and that, they actually stick around and listen to the answers. Um, one of the good and bad things about covering any beat for a long time is that you tend to feel like you've seen everything. Things repeat themselves. Seasons come and go, just as in anything else. Um, for instance, since I've started, I've always seen a lot of people who get kind of lionized on Wall Street because they make a good call about the direction of the economy or they, you know, they call their clients and tell them, sell your stocks. Things are going to tank tomorrow. Uh, these people, they become stars for a while. Everybody wants to hear what they have to say until they guess wrong, and then suddenly they're, you know, they're yesterday's news. The latest is Noriel Rubini, who's with NYU. He had some very good, prescient things to say about the, the, the economy, about the housing market. 
Um, he was very bearish for a long time. But, of course, the stock market has been rallying since March. And I noticed he was on TV this week, and the in- interviewer was kind of pummeling him with questions about, you know, how come you told everybody to stay out of stocks last December? Um, so he's kind of, I think, maybe on his way down. And, and by the way, I think that probably says more about the media than it does about Noriel Rubini. Um, the other thing that's happened now is a kind of a crisis in the financial markets. I've seen this happen several times, brought on by downturns in the economy. In 1998, there was the collapse of long-term capital management, which was the big hedge fund that was started by all the brilliant um, Nobel Prize winners, uh, got into big trouble, had to be bailed out by the government. Um, after that, there were all the corporate scandals, WorldCom, Global Crossing, Enron. Um, finally, now we have the subprime crisis, which really and truly seems to have brought the economy to the brink of disaster. I, you know, I think we're seeing light at the end of the tunnel now, certainly, but things are still really dicey. Things are still scary. Um, and after every one of these incidents, um, people want to know, how did this happen? How could companies get away with this? And especially, where was the board of directors? Where was the audit committee? Um, where were the auditors? And there have all, uh, inevitably, after every time, there were calls for more government regulation. Uh, sometimes these calls were heeded. Sometimes they weren't. That's true of the financial crisis we're in now. It's mostly being talked about as a, as a regulatory failure. There's a real top-down effort now by Congress and the White House to change the regulatory system that oversees the financial markets. I think they've lost a certain amount of momentum by now because the financial crisis isn't as much of an emergency as it was you know, last March, last April. Uh, And it's maybe not as easy to get the political support to change things as as there was back then. But something will get done. Um, But aside from that, aside from thinking about regulatory changes, we are also asking questions about the companies themselves. Um, How did these big banks manage to to do so much leverage? Um, Why did they get into these crazy derivatives that nobody can really understand? Where were the auditors and where was, you know, where was the board of directors? Now, I look at these questions like everybody else from the outside, um, and I wonder, uh, you know, about uh, about the answers just like everybody else does. Um, But I have gone through an experience this summer that for me personally has shed a little bit of light on why boards fail, and I want to talk about it. Um, I live in New York City, as I said, and when I, when I moved there 20 years ago, one of the strange things was I often thought just how hard it was to find a place to live because you would walk around and see all these amazing buildings and all you could, uh, you would wonder, well, why can't I live there, and why, why can't I live there? But they were all sort of off limits to you, um, for one reason or another. Um, one of the things, what I learned is that a lot of those buildings were rent stabilized or rent controlled, which means the rents go up very slowly, if at all. And so, if you were lucky enough. To get into one of those buildings, you you tended to stay forever because you got such a good deal. Um, and a lot of the other buildings were, were co-ops. Um, co-ops are a kind of New York City institution. There are co-ops in the poorest working class neighborhoods of the city in the boroughs. And there are co-ops on Fifth Avenue. Uh, the richest people in the city live in co-ops. Um, if you don't know the difference between a, a co-op and condo, I, I will explain it. Um, when you buy a condo, you're actually buying space in a building. When you buy a co-op, your legal relationship to the building is a lot different. You're not buying an apartment. What you're doing is buying shares in a corporation that then leases your apartment to you. Now, the thing about co-ops is they are self-governing, and they're usually managed by a professional management agent, maybe a company and a superintendent, and they handle the day-to-day things. They handle things like, you know, arranging the trash pickup and making sure that the lights on the third floor get fixed. Um, 
but we also have the, the co-ops also have a board of shareholders who hire the managing agent and oversee what he does and in that sense the structure is not unlike a publicly traded company you know they they tend to have treasurers secretaries auditors lawyers they have annual meetings um, now I finally ended up buying a co-op in 1996 in a very large building in Manhattan on the Upper West Side. And it has about 215 apartments and a staff of, of about 25, doormen, handymen, so on and so forth. Um, about four years ago, I was nominated to serve on the board. And, and nominated probably makes it sound like more, more of an honor than it really was. The truth is, you know, nobody lines up to take those jobs. Um, it's not like there's a lot of competition. It's like any other kind of civic endeavor. Most people are busy. They don't have time they, to devote to something like that. So there's a core of people that end up doing all the work. And that's the way it is in, in my building. Now, the, the people who do tend to serve are very often retired which is in the, the case in my building, there are nine of us on the board. I am the, the youngest person there. Um, I, I, I really enjoy saying that. <laughs> the, those of us, we get together on the board once a month. The meetings are generally slow and not very exciting. They kind of drag. Um, you know, we'll talk about somebody has a leak in a terrace and the 17th floor. Um, should we buy a widescreen TV for the, for the gym? Um, you know, should, what should we do about the capital improvements budget? It's stuff like that, simple stuff. One of the things that we do is, is approve sales. Um, when somebody moves into a co-op, they have to s submit a really thick packet of information, financial and personal information. Uh, it's quite an intrusive process, which is why people hate going through it. Um, but we decide whether, we look at this and we decide whether the person can live there. Now, we can turn somebody down for any reason other than race and religion. Um, you know, you can turn somebody down, you meet them, you don't like their clothes, you, know, you think their kids are obnoxious, you know, you, you, know you, you disagree about whether Mad Men is a good show, anything, any reason at all, you can, you can decide. And there have been, you, you know, you may have heard lots of stories over the years about you know, prominent, famous people like Madonna getting turned down by co-op boards. I think in her case it was because the board knew that if she lived there, the paparazzi would be at the door all the time. So they said, no, we don't want you here, and they turned her down. Um, usually, though, co-op boards make almost all of their decisions based strictly on money. Uh, we look at the mortgage and the maintenance obligations that the person is taking on. Then we look at the person's income and assets. And then we just decide whether the per we think the person will be comfortably able to afford the apartment. Co-ops are actually a lot stricter than mortgage lenders. You know, you might be able to get a mortgage, especially a few years ago. It was easy to get a mortgage. Didn't mean that you could get by the co-op board. Uh, and the reason the boards are so strict is simple. Under the rules of a co-op, if somebody buys an apartment and they can't pay the maintenance, then the other shareholders have to make up the difference. This has actually led to some kind of strange situations. Um, most of us on the board have been living there for so long, and we bought our apartments back when they were really cheap. Uh, but the thing is, the price of Manhattan apartments has gone up three and four times in a decade, and most of us on the board probably couldn't afford to buy our own apartments these days. I, I know I couldn't. So we're in the position of telling, you know, lawyers and big Wall Street traders and executives who come in that, you know, that they're not rich enough to be our neighbors. Um, so as I said, the meetings are usually pretty slow and uneventful, but then something happened earlier this year that changed that. You know, I, I can't go into a lot of details. What I will say is that uh, one of our staff members was was running a sideline of cleaning people's windows. Residents in the building would pay him to clean their windows. Um, he did this on his own time. Uh, he was told not to do it because he, he didn't have the insurance, and he stopped for a while, and then he started doing it again. And then one day he was doing it, and something happened. He opened a window, and the air conditioner fell out and landed on the sidewalk eight I think eight flights below. 
narrow. Nobody was hurt. But, you know, there are always people walking around on the sidewalks in New York, and somebody could have been really easily. Um, so we got together. We talked about what to do, and the guy was fired. We decided to fire him. Well, this touched off this huge war in our building, um, and things have really not been the same ever since then. The guy had been working in our building for a long time. He was very well-liked. Uh, and the decision to fire him was unpopular with a lot of people. They thought we were being unfair. They thought, you know, we should have given him another chance. So some of these residents started to get together and talk about what to do. And then these other grievances that they had started to come to the surface. Uh, uh, complaints about the superintendent, the managing agent, and, and us, the board. Um, and what they decided to do was to, ha to try to unseat us by running against us in the board elections that take place every summer. Now, this had never happened. Uh, there had never been a contested election, as far as I knew. Most years, y you couldn't even get people to turn out to vote. Um, but this year, there was this dissident group of shareholders, and that, that is what we called them, the dissident group of shareholders. They began walking around, knocking on people's doors, and asking people to vote for them. And if people didn't want to vote, they, they asked, they tried to collect their proxies so they could vote for them, vote on their behalf. And of course, my side started doing the same thing. We tried to collect as many proxies as, as possible. That became the object. You know, we would talk to each other. How many proxies did you get today? Um, now, uh, New Yorkers are not nece necessarily known for tact and diplomacy, and this very quickly lapsed into a really nasty fight. Um, people chose sides. There were confrontations in the corridors. Um, there were really uncomfortable moments. You'd get in the elevator with somebody who was on the other side, and it was just icy cold for you know, all the way up. Um, and, it, and it was sad to watch, too, because a lot of the older board members had been living in the building for a long time. They thought they had friends there, but then they'd go to ask for their vote. And they find out, you know, the friendship didn't really go as far as they thought. Anyway, the, the election finally came um, after a few weeks of, uh, of, of this. We had a big public meeting. The votes were cast. Uh, we had to wait a few days to make sure they were counted thoroughly. But then in the end, the result was that my side won. Uh, we were reelected pretty much with one exception. And, and now things on the surface are kind of back to normal again. Now, a lot of people tell me that I, I'm kind of crazy to try to draw an analogy between my little, well, not so little, but my apartment building and a big publicly traded company. And of course, I know that. I know there are all kinds of differences between the two, See, you know, starting with the fact that they get paid a lot of money and we get paid nothing for serving on the board. But there are some parallels. Um, the first thing to say is that I don't know why my side won. Um, my colleagues on the board worked very diligently to gather as many proxies as possible, but then again, so did the other guys. I do know there was a lot of sadness and anger among residents about how nasty things had gotten. They really regretted that. We had always seemed to get along fine, uh, and, and that changed. But I don't know that they blamed one side more than the other for that. You know, what I do know is that the other side, the other guys, had their work cut out for them because, you know, as people who try to mount shareholder fights will tell you, it's a really tough thing to do. Um, you remember last spring there was an effort by some dissident shareholders to, to get rid of Ken Lewis, who was the chairman and CEO of Bank of America. Uh, there was a lot of unhappiness about the acquisition of Merrill Lynch. Um, they had some heavy hitters who were opposed to... Lewis, like the California Public Employee Retirement System, the biggest pension fund. A um, lot, lot of people wanted to see him go, and they tried, and they failed. They, they were able to get him out as board chairman, but he kept his job as CEO, and he has since re re resigned. I, I think this is because there's just a huge inertia factor that affects these kinds of votes. A lot of shareholders are just passive by nature. Um, you know, they, unless people feel that things are really terrible, they tend to go with what they know. 
Uh, in our case, we had never had a contested election. And, you know, people had gotten into the habit over the years of sort of signing over their proxy statements to us and to the management. And even though there was this very visible fight going on, um, you know, uh, um, they just did what they'd always done. They assigned them over to us again, and I think that gave us a big advantage. The other thing I learned from all this is that um, board members are not necessarily in a good position to know what's going on in an organization. Um, in my building, the other side, the other guys made a lot of allegations of wrongdoing against the management, against us, against the superintendent. Um, now, I, I didn't believe them, and I still don't. I didn't see any evidence for it. But that was mainly because I knew the guys that they were talking about, and I trusted them. I'd, I'd been working with them over the years, and I'd come to trust them. But it occurred to me that, you know, if a building manager wanted to cheat the building, he, he, it wouldn't be that hard to get away with it. And, in fact, you know, that happens in New York a lot. Um, every few months there are stories in the paper about managing agents and superintendents who get, who get charged with taking kickbacks and bribes from suppliers and vendors. And, of course, the board in these cases, like the board at Enron, was you know, so, sort of caught unaware. And I think this is simply because the managing agent is really intimately involved with the running of the building in a way that a board member can't be. Uh, the managing agent, you know, or to, to stretch the analogy, the CEO has a huge knowledge advantage over board members. I mean, we kind of helicopter in, we take a look at what he's done. You know, as a board member, you can, you can look at the books, you can raise questions about things. If you don't like what you can what you hear, you can pursue the matter. But you have to know what stones to overturn. And in the absence of any real evidence of malfeasance, you know, the tendency is always to sort of take the path of least resistance. You know, we on the board are busy people. We can't become full-time investigators. And I think the same is true of corporate board members. They're paid very nicely for serving on boards. Um, I have no doubt a lot of them take their responsibilities very seriously, but they're busy people too. They have obligations. You know, they often serve on multiple boards. And I think over time there's just a tendency to go through the motions. If things seem to be running smoothly and the stock price is up and if other companies are doing all the same things that your company is doing, you know, then the tendency is just not to press too hard, uh, not to express reservations if you have them very loudly. You know, why, why stir up the waters too much? You know, especially if the chairman who appointed you is somebody that you've known a long time, maybe he's even your friend, you know him, you trust him. Um, you don't necessarily know these other guys who are trying to storm the barricades. And besides, you've been making some, some you know, they've been making some pretty tough allegations about you. You don't think it's fair and you get defensive. Now, I, I am not saying any of this is a good thing. I'm not excusing it. I just think it's human nature, and I think it explains why so many board members at you know companies like WorldCom and Citigroup have have often seemed to be asleep at the switch. Now, finally, I think I learned um, that as with so many other things, the problem that we faced had to do with communication. You know, our board has a couple of large public meetings a year, but basically we meet behind closed doors, just like any other board. We very often have to make decisions that get people angry at us. Um, you, you tell somebody, you know, no, you can't remodel your kitchen, and, and the person gets mad. He wants to know why. And you really don't want to tell him because you don't want to have to get into a long debate with him. And then there are legal concerns, too. Anything you, you say to the guy can come back and be used against you later in a lawsuit. So it's really just safer to try to play things close to the vest, to not really answer the questions. Um, but the result is that the person gets angry, the person seethes, and you may have made an enemy for a long time. Um, over time, if enough of that goes on, people tend to see the board as, as unaccountable and, and unresponsive. And I think this dynamic exists in a lot of boards, people feel like you know the board meets in secret and it comes out with these decisions that affect the value of the stock, and they don't have any real say in in the actions. That that's fine when times are good, 
um, but when times are bad, people start to demand answers. You're really seeing this play out now in the area of executive pay. There's this huge um, movement that they call say on pay. Uh, basically, shareholders are unhappy about all of these these, you've heard about them, these impossibly rich pay packages that a lot of executives get. You know, it, it looks like executives get paid when the company does well. It looks like they get paid when the company does poorly. And then, you know, people start to ask, well, well how did this happen? Who approved this pay package? Um, and they want answers, and the board isn't necessarily in a position to give them. Um, so basically, the say on pay movement is uh, they, they, a, a lot of shareholders want to be able to pass resolutions expressing their opinion about pay packages. These are all, uh, usually non-binding resolutions. In other words, they simply want to get on the record as saying that they disapprove, and um, by implication that the board members will be held accountable for their actions. Y you know, you sort of feel like people just want to want their voices heard. Um, so I think boards need to communicate the idea that they're, that they're more accountable and that they're willing to listen to people. Um, we're really in this situation now where people have a lot at stake in the way publicly traded companies are running. That's, that's because so many of us now have our retirement money tied up in them. Um, but it's also because we have these, you know, these too big to fail companies, especially the banks, and as we've seen, they, they, when they do risky things, and they've been doing a lot of risky things, it affects the whole economy. Um, the other, fi finally, I think I, I learned something else this summer, and, and I know this is probably more not, not a corporate governance issue. It's more just a question of simple human nature. I, I think it has a lot to do with the kind of very fractious, divided political culture that we're in today. Um, I came away thinking shareholder battles are a really bad way of, of resolving conflicts. I think in our case, if people had just sat down and talked um, and you know, discussed things, the election would have gone a different way. I think people on my side would have been willing to listen to the points that the other guys were making. Um, you know, I saw this in my conversations with people. Once you started to talk to people on the other side, you realized you know, they almost always had a more subtle view of the situation than, than you expected. But then once everybody went to the barricades, it became a lot harder to bring people together. The debate really shut down. Things got very heated very quickly. And I, I just think if, if both sides had taken a different tack, it, it wouldn't have spiraled down so fast. Now, I, I know maybe that this is a little bit unrealistic. I, I am a journalist. This is why I was uncomfortable with this whole situation because I am sort of trained to sit on the sidelines and try to understand both sides' views. And, you know, the older I get, the more I believe in this approach. I think most people have points to make, and once you try to get inside their heads and understand where they're coming from, you start to realize, you know, maybe the situation is more nuanced than you thought. You know, maybe your assumption about the other person and what he wants and what he thinks uh, we're simply wrong. Um, you know, maybe, you know, God help you, you can even work together. I, I know this thinking is kind of at odds with sort of the zeitgeist right now. Uh, I, and I know that people can use mediation and diplomacy and sitting down to talk as a, as a way of avoiding real action, really solving problems. And I'm not obviously recommending that. I also know that probably to a lot of people that sounds kind of squishy, um, but I have really yet to see a situation in in my life where trying to understand your opponent, you know, to really try to figure out where he's coming from and what he wants is a bad thing, and I and I think that applies to Bank of America and I think it applies to little apartment buildings like mine in New York City. So I won't. I I thank you. I I won't try to stretch that analogy any further than it than it is, but. Um, I, I, I feel like I did learn, learn something from it this summer, and um, that's why I wanted to tell you about it. So thank you. Jim, thank you. Now what we're going to do is we're going to um, allow you to ask some questions. Uh, I hope it's fair game, Jim, that we can ask some questions about generally your perspective as, as a member of the media as well as some of the things you've commented on. Sure. So what, if you have a question, there's going to be two places you can do this. You can line up here or over there. 
to ask questions. We're going to allow some time here, so and then we're not going to do the uh, swiping here until after some questions. So uh, sit tight here. Think of something that you want to ask uh, Jim about, and uh, I'm going to lead off. And then while I'm leading off and he's answering, anyone who wants to ask a question can line up either behind here or behind the mic over there. Uh, or if you want to raise your hand, I guess we can just give it to you. Um, Jim, related to your last couple comments are about um, the sense that we're polarized uh, as a country, but also then polarized often in different um, conflicts that we, we have. Uh, what role do you think the media plays in either promoting this kind of polarization, or it, what role could it play in maybe um, minimizing it? Well, I, I, I mean, I guess it depends on what who you're talking about by the media. I mean, I, I, I like, it's, it's such a broad term these days and it encompasses so many different things. I, 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 I guess I clearly think that there are a lot of people, you know, on cable TV on both sides who, who just um, foment political conflict and I don't watch them. I, I really don't. Um, I, I don't... Uh, I get the sense, you know, you watch some of those shows on cable and you feel like it's just like for pe people to hear what they, they already think and, and hear what they want to they wanna hear and, and almost to, for, for, to feel, to improve their morale about their own political team. Uh, so I, I don't know. But, but I, 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 everything is so in flux in the media right now and it, it's such a crazy time. I don't know. You know, I'm tempted to say that the institutional media organizations, you know, like the AP and the Times, New York Times, and so on, and so Wall Street Journal, and that that they that they're different. But I don't, who even knows where they're going to be in five or ten years? I don't know. I think that, I think a lot of those places. I mean, I I think we've seen it at NPR. There's a feeling like people want opinion journalism. And that it's a good thing, and it gets ratings, and it gets. Uh, and I, I think they would like to find a way to incorporate. I think all media would like to find a way to incorporate more of that into their into their coverage of things. So, and, and it's not the way I work, but you know, times change. <laughs> Hi, Jim. Hi. Uh, what role do you believe the, uh, I mean, you said you don't watch them, but tens of millions of Americans do. So what's going to change? Uh, it seems as though the public as a whole has this undying craving for uh, bombastic journalism. Yeah, I know. And do you feel in some way that that has created the situations that we're in right now? You know, you know I, I, I would actually disagree with you. I, I don't think tens of millions of people watch cable news. I mean, I, I think their audience is actually pretty small. I mean, when I was growing up, we had Walter Cronkite who got like 60 million, I don't know what, huge numbers of viewers every night. And there's nothing like that anymore. The audience has gotten so fragmented. I mean, NPR is a doing pretty well and I I think if my all things considered we'll get like two and a half million listeners a night that that's not a huge number I mean I just think it's I think it's so fragmented I do think those shows you know on the left and on the right have a lot of they're watched by people who matter they're watched by opinion makers that's why the, you turn on the commercials and they're always lob, you know lobbying they're, they're always commercials about some kind of political fight in Congress now because they know that the opinion makers are watching them. But I, I, don't, I don't know that, that they're that popular. I don't know. I don't know what is popular anymore. I don't know who. I don't know. It doesn't seem like anybody really is. Anybody has a huge audience. It seems like we're all just, it's just, uh, you know, it's fragments, fragmented. So, but I, I, I don't... I don't know. I, I don't. I don't know how you can watch those shows and feel like you're getting any kind of honest, uh, complete view of what's going on. 
I don't know. But again. Questions? Last question. Yeah. I'm bringing it over. When you're when you're sitting um, when you're when you're given an assignment, you go out to that assignment. Is there a charter that NPR stated a mission, a, 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 some type of a goal that you're stating that um, that you go out with the intention of providing coverage on that, or you say now you feel that the the media is starting to become more opinionated, more opinion driven, and a, and a sort of a forum for that discussion? Do you feel, or have you heard, or have you had the discussion? that there's actually a charter within NPR that you'll go out to educate and inform versus, or, or, or do you feel that's becoming a ratings drive? To I, I mean, I don't know if it's written down anywhere, but I think there is a general consensus. I think most people at NPR believe in the mission that we have, and, and it's kind of un, unstated. It's sort of, um, you, you know, we, we have a, there's, the organization has built up kind of a, prof, a sense of... Yeah. Well, I hope that we live up to that. I mean, we're not the only ones either. I mean, there's lots of good journalism being done out there. Um, I, you know, um, I, I hope that's the case. I think there's. I think we try very hard. You know, any news organization that I have ever seen anywhere. One, even the best. I mean, I know people at the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times, and the the best ones. They all, if you talk to them, they all say, "Oh man, this place is just terrible. I can't believe the you won't believe how decisions get made." You know, it's this the old thing about the you don't want to see the sausage being made, and we feel like that too. We I see, and I'm acutely aware of the stories that we miss. I'm not sure. The listeners notice that, um, so I don't ever feel like I, you know, like we're. I mean, I don't feel like I don't walk around thinking, "Oh, wow, we're doing a great job." But then, if you, when you can kind of step back and you sort of look and compare us to what a lot of people do, I sort of feel pretty proud about that. But journalists are grumblers, you know; <laughs> they're just never happy. I'm very glad that my students are here because we're going to be having a class on communicating with the media and media communication and, a, and when we finish our segment on ethics that we're doing right now. And I hope that they remember the conversations that we're having now because I'm a lot older than they are and I do remember when Walter Cronkite told us, you know, you are there and yeah. we were. And I believe that in my perception anyway over the history that I have that Reporting used to be more neutral and used to be more fact-driven as opposed to opinion. And as we drifted away from that over time, people went along with it at first, and then they began to say, wait a minute, that's not just facts, that's opinions. Opinions belong on the opinion page or the commentaries or the letters to the editor. And now it seems that most things are put through a grid of one point of view or the other. And, of course, when you have one point of view, you always see it in the other. And so when you always talk about cable television, I would say that there's also bias and opinion in non-cable news. And I do listen to NPR on the way in. Uh, most mornings, especially when I'm with my husband because he watches all the time. He's an economist, or listens all the time. He's an economist. And sometimes we think things are factual, and sometimes we think they're not, and they Mm -hmm. represent different opinions, and that's okay. I guess where I struggle is where opinions are presented as facts, and only one point of view is facts, and the the opposing one is not because it's opposing. And who, who who are you thinking of? Well, I'm thinking of, here I'm going back and forth with, with the TV news. I, I find myself, I can't watch any of it very long from any one source because it begins to get opinions. And I'm, I'm wanting the facts so I can draw my own opinions. And I think today there's so much more source of information with the Internet. And, the, and not all that is good. Not all that is factual. But it's out there. And so people are doing a lot more... Th- assessing of what is out there than just taking what's given to them 
as we used to do in the 50s and even in, into the 60s. Yeah. That's, just, know, that's just not that environment anymore. I just, I, the Internet is, 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 is so weird to me because I don't, you know, what it's doing is killing off a lot of newspapers and killing off a lot of news organizations that have given us, you know, professional salaries and, you know, given us a, a place to work. And it, re- it really is killing, like even the best newspapers are suffering because the advertising has moved to the web. That, I mean, that, that's a real problem because as I see it, most of, the, most of the Internet sites I see, I don't see a lot of original content. I see some. You know, there's some people who do that. There are blogs galore. Um, there are aggregators, you know, like Drudge, who basically are, you know, they're not writing their own stuff. They're just collecting it from various sources. Um, and Drudge always has, you know, articles from the Times, something from NBC. And so they're sort of, you know, they're, they're, they're in a way, they're, they're parasites. I mean, they're taking, they're linking free to things that are that are to journalism that's paid for, you know, by news organizations uh, who hire professional journalists and pay them salaries. And when that falls apart, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't see a lot of citizen journalism being done out there out, outside the system. I, I mean, we're we're really it's like we're we're killing off the old system, and I I don't know what's going to replace it. Something will. It always does. You know, it's just life. You know, creative destruction of the economy. It, ha- it will happen. I just don't know what it's going to be. I think we got one over there, and then we'll go here. Um, being one of her students, I may be going for brownie <laughs> points, but this is also a valid question, I assure you. Um, and, and this isn't supposed to sound like a joke, but you see shows like Saturday Night Live. Um, they came out with a poll recently that said um, Sarah Palin's popularity rating went down after they started um, mm-hmm. mocking her on the show. Um, and you've seen a rise of popularity with people like John Stewart and Stephen Colbert mm-hmm. and, and people like that. Do you think that these people do more harm in terms of causing more opinionated views, or do you think they do a relatively good job of informing their viewers? Because there's also proof that um, you take people that watch Stephen Colbert's show, um, I, I think they said a, a higher percentage of viewers on his show knew who the British Prime Minister was compared to the BBC. Um, do you think they do a good job of educating, or do you think they are just there to cause trouble? Well, I think that to some extent that probably depends on your political point of view. Um, you know, when you, when you watch, you know, I know John Stewart, during the Bush administration, he, I think a lot of liberals thought, hey, you know, he's telling it like it is, and the mainstream media is completely in the pocket of the Bush administration, and he's, this is the only place where you can get the truth. And I know that we heard that in surveys, that people said that. That was where they got a lot of their news, and especially people in your generation. I, I, I don't know. Um, I, I, I would like to think that everybody would get their news from professional sources. Um, I, but I, I think that, that horse has left the barn a long time ago. I mean, I almost think it doesn't matter anymore. I mean, we just have to adjust. I also don't think, you know, there's so many sources of news right now. And even John Stewart, I don't know what his ratings are, but he's just one of many. I mean, he's, and he's, he's influential. If he does something, it tends to go viral and everybody hears about it. But it's not like he's the only source. There are so many others. I, I don't know. You mentioned earlier that you're studying photography yeah. for the uh, for the web. I'm sorry to bring up a touchy subject <laughs> if that's the case, but um, could you just talk a little bit about um, how you've seen the web influence uh, media in general? And, I, and you've you've touched on this, but could you specifically talk about? NPR and where you see it going. Well, NPR is very much, very hot on building up our web audience. We have put a lot of money and a lot of people into this. Um, Now, NPR is one news organization. There aren't many, but I think Fox is another one that is actually growing slightly in audience. Every time we 
every time there's a big news event, Katrina, 2000, you know, the 9-11, the Obama election, our audience goes like this. You know, we lose a little after it's over, but they stick with us. So people, people are, are coming to us, which is a wonderful thing. But I think that there's a long-term fear that our audience is aging, that young people, I guess in your, in your generation, don't listen to NPR. Um, they go to other places. They go to the Internet. And there is a lot of concern now about reaching that group. And we have, this year, you know, we have laid people off, including some journalists who've been on the air for years. And yet we've also hired a lot of people in digital. There's, there's just a... I don't, I don't know how successful it's been so far, but I think NPR feels like you just have to do something. You can't sit on your hands. Uh, and, and we're doing... They, they really want us to, you know, do web text and... Uh, slideshows and it's, and it's a it's a strange thing because because we're really kind of bifurcated now because there's this if you go to Washington there's this large digital news operation and they do their own program they have their own writers and they don't necessarily write about stuff that we're writing about um, and the other thing is you know we are always used to. Um, Doing doing programs for uh, our programs are in the morning and then at four o'clock all things considered comes on, and that's our day. That's the rhythm of our day. We do stories and we want them to be done by four. Um, so that's the way we think. We get together in the morning. We decide what. But the digital people have a completely different rhythm to their day because they and they will say this. Their audience is like 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. because people go on there at work. They go to work, they sit and they, they go on the Internet and they look at websites. And um, I wonder what that does to productivity. <laughs> but, um, they, so they have to be ready. They have to have their stuff ready much earlier. And for me, you know, they'll come to me and, I'll, and they'll, they'll call me in the morning the, the, and I'll, they'll tell me I have to do this thing for all things considered on, I don't know, Tim Geithner testifying in Congress. And I'm just starting to get it done, just starting to, be, to look into it and to do my work. And it's 10 o'clock. But the web people want stuff done at 11. Uh, so it's, it's, I guess what I'm saying is it's, it's becoming like a, you know, they're related to us, but it's becoming a pretty different operation. And I don't, I don't know what's going to happen in the long run. The other thing is, I don't, I'm very skeptical that you can, I mean, I, I really am enjoying learning to take photos, and I want to want to learn to do it well. Um, but I realize that, you know, it's a full-time job to be a good photographer. If you go out into a story, you know, I, I did a story about um, this project in Brooklyn called the Nehemiah Homes, which has a, it's a church-sponsored, uh, they, they build affordable housing, and they have a very low foreclosure rate. And I took photos of this woman in her house, and they were really terrible. <laughs> I mean, they were, they were bad, and even I knew it at the time. But had, there, had I had, if there were two of me, the other one could have gone and taken photos and done a really good job. S but there weren't. And I have to focus on recording interviews and absorbing information. And, and I, I just, I don't know how you can do both well. But maybe, you know, maybe you can. <laughs> All right, I think we have, do we have one more and then that's it? Okay, we're going to do one more and then. Okay. Hi, just, just speaking from the perspective of a business student, um, you know, we're in a new age of technology, and there's no lying about that, but there's obviously a downside, and the, there's a proliferation of sources through which we have to sift you know, being in the grad school, we do a lot of research, go through a lot of different sources, and one of the downsides may be that how are we supposed to judge the integrity of sources anymore? And uh, do, do you think that makes us more or less ethically aware as a generation? Uh, I, I, I mean, I don't see that you have any choice other than to just read them and trust them, and you know, you do critical thinking and and try to, you know, try to judge what they say and remember what they say because if they say one thing, and then three months later it turns out to not be true well I mean I would I would hold them to that 
a lot of people say a lot of things. Um, but but I, I don't I don't know how how you can do that. I mean, I don't, what do you, what do you what do you listen to? Do you, do you look at do you look at blogs for information? I, I really feel like it's you know drinking from a fire hose that there's just so much information and I I can't I can't begin to go through it all. In the morning I look at the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and each one of them is like an hour to read and then there's the Financial Times and there's Business Week and Fortune and every time I read Fortune I think wow they have some great articles why don't I read this more often. Um, there's just there's so much and then you can start to get into all the blogs now like Simon Johnson has a blog and and it's just there's I I don't know how you I don't know how you you absorb it all it just doesn't seem possible to me this is part of it's part of the nature of the internet that's part of the nature of the media today All right. Well, we're going to close off this section. We got a few more things to do. Jim, thank you very much again. Thank you. Um, we have a plaque here that uh, recognizes that uh, you're launching our um, ethics forum, our Dale P. Jones Ethics Forum, 2009. It's a small token of our appreciation. It's great to have a. We try and in each of the ethics forums to try and uh, integrate some other parts of campus because even though. Uh, uh, as a business school, we have programs we want to put in front of students. We also want fresh perspectives from other areas, and so it's wonderful to have kind of a media journalist perspective. So thank you very much. You spelled my name right, which is Ah, good. All right. Good thing.